0: Brahmyan Sukham cha Bhunkte Sarvatra Sarvada Bunte Sarvada Gentlemen, there's just two of you, a couple of you. Samsara Chakra etasmin <laughs> janta ya namo hi ta bramyam punte sarvatra sarvada samsara chakra etasmin Jantur-Agyanamo-Hita Brahmyam-Suka-Ca-Dukham-Cha bung sarvada Anybody here? Uh? Thang-tara-rega-e-kvas-min Madhya sukham Dukamcha dukham cha. sarvadra sarvada, ladies. <laughs> samsara chakra etasmin chantar agyana mohita. Brahmyam Sukham Chadukam Cha Pungte Sarvatra Sarvata Samsara Chakra E Tasmin Jantur Ajnana Mohita Brahmyam Sukham Chadukam Cha Punkte Sarvatra Sarvata, please repeat. Samsara Chakra, in the wheel of material existence. Etasmin. this, Jantu the living entity, Ajnana Mohita being bewildered by ignorance. Brahmyan wandering. Sukham, happiness. Cha, and. Dukham, distress. Cha, also. Bungte, he undergoes. Sarvatra, everywhere. Sarvada, always. Translation by A.C. Bhaktivedanta, no, translation, it's also by Bhaktivedanta Swami. Deluded by ignorance, the living entity wanders in the forest of this material world, enjoying the happiness and distress resulting from his past deeds everywhere and at all times. Therefore, my dear mother, neither you nor I am to blame, be blamed for this incident purport by A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. As confirmed in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter seven, 3, uh, text 27, prakriti kriyamanani gunayi karma ahankara vimudhatma kartaham manyate." The bewildered soul under the influence of the three modes of material nature thinks himself the doer of activities that are in actuality carried out by nature. Actually, a conditioned soul is completely under the control of material nature. Wandering here and there, always and everywhere, he is subjected to the results of his past deeds. This is carried out by the laws of nature, but one foolishly thinks himself the doer, which in fact he is not. To get free from the karma chakra, the wheel of the results of one's karma one should take to bhakti-marg, devotional service or Krishna consciousness. That is the only remedy. sarva dharma mame mamekam Sharnam raja So this is the insight of a very realized person. The awareness that somehow or other, they themselves And every other living entity, every person due to their own ignorance, sometimes feels happiness and sometimes feels distress, which are the consequences of their own past deeds. And typically when we experience distress or are unhappy, we're looking for someone to blame, isn't it? Yeah, we're looking for somebody. Mostly we're looking to blame someone other than ourselves. And as we ruminate and think about our unhappy condition, we start to tell a story about our unhappiness, and on the basis of the story we tell ourselves, we justify justify our abuse or neglect of other living beings, or even the abuse and the neglect of our own selves. So we might be thinking, I'm really unhappy because of this situation or that situation, or this person did this to me and therefore I'm unhappy, and that person did that thing to me and therefore I am unhappy, or if this or that had not happened, I would be happy, and so on and so on. It's all their fault, or we might be thinking, it's all my fault, and we beat ourselves up eternally about something. I think most of us can have relate to that experience and all of these real rationalizations and attempts at explaining why i'm unhappy is another form of trying to defend ourselves from the painful realization that we have created our own circumstances whatever it is that whatever is happening to us now the quality of our lives is the result of what we put into motion knowingly or unknowingly perhaps many lifetimes ago so the body we have the place we were born the parents we got the children we got our ethnicity our gender our nationality our social circumstances and everything else are the result of the choices we made moment to moment based on the quality of our consciousness and our desires. And because we are ignorant that every moment we are making choices based on our own desires, when the results of those choices manifest, we don't make that connection. We don't trace back and back, asking ourselves, what did I do to invite this situation that I'm in right now? But if we would just stop and consider, hmm, how did I get here in this current situation, and then start making the archaeological dig, tracing back and back, we would probably discover, I did this to myself. I was the one who made this situation. So Western philosophers and theologians have been pondering these topics also since time immemorial, and they have their own theories of why people suffer. And they have also come to the conclusion that it's really not possible to pinpoint the exact origin of our suffering in terms of where it all started. Uh, But like Vaishnavas, most world religions accept the notion that sometime or other, the soul decided to turn away from the supreme source of their lives, the supreme being or God, and fell or descended into a self-centered consciousness that we turned our our back on God and aspired to be God ourselves by being the center focus of our enjoyment and the ultimate controller of our lives. And in this way, our false ego or false sense of self was born. And as Chitra Ketu, he says in this text, neither I nor you are to be blamed for this incident because it is the nature of life in this material world that our various karmic reactions from our past choices are going to crash into each other. It is just part of living in this material world of forever changing, moving parts. This is the nature. It's always changing. And so we're all bumping around. It's natural that we're going to crash into each other and bump into each other. So instead of wasting time trying to figure out who is to blame, it's more wise to simply accept whatever has happened and acknowledge the limitations of our intelligence and the capability to overcome this material nature. After all, in English, saying, what is the matter, means the same as what is the problem. Did you ever think of that? We say, what's the matter? What's the problem? It's the same question. So the reality of our life condition is hidden in our own language. If you speak English, the matter means problem. What is the matter and what is the problem? And Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, this divine energy of mind." consisting of the three modes of material nature is difficult to overcome, but those who have surrendered unto me can easily cross beyond it. I'm going to tell you a story. I may have told this before, but you know, old people repeat themselves. So, you know, I may not remember I told you this story, but when I was growing up, we used to watch a TV show in, in the United States called the Twilight Zone. Did you have that here? Do you, did Australians know that one? Alan Funt, you know the guy? Nine o'clock. What? Well, yeah, God, I was like 10, nine years old. And there in one program, there was one program that I never forgot. If you used to watch that show, you may remember it. But there were two little children whose parents were very wealthy and they had a swimming pool in their backyard. And everything money could buy But the downside of their life was that their mother was very, very angry and abusive to them pretty much all the time. So the children used to take refuge in the pool to escape her association. And one day the little boy was swimming to the bottom of the pool and he found a hole where the drain pipe was. And so he explored it and found out it was actually a small tunnel and so he decided to swim through that tunnel to see where it went. So after a short distance, he emerged out of the tunnel into this beautiful garden that was filled with lovely fruit and flowering trees. The sky was blue with white clouds, and there were birds chirping sweetly, and the sun was shining, and there were little rabbits and creatures hopping around, and the bees were buzzing, and it was so peaceful with all the natural beauty. It was just almost overwhelming to him. So the little boy, he wanted to share this experience with his sister who was still in the swimming pool on the other side of the tunnel. So he swam back through the tunnel and told her to follow him. So then the two of them went back through the tunnel to this beautiful, heavenly garden place. And you could imagine that it was similar to the atmosphere of Goloka Vrindavan with all the wonderful butterflies and all these things, so a perpetual springtime. And um, the little girl, his sister, was also almost totally overwhelmed to see all the natural beauty. And she was completely attractive to all the fragrant smells from all those flowers. Then suddenly, out of nowhere, there came an old woman who was very kind and generous and wise. And she greeted them with a tray of everything children love to eat. Lots of sweets and fruits and all kinds of homemade treats, like cookies and cupcakes and pizza and, you know, lots of sugary foods that only kids can eat without getting sick, at least for now. And the old woman introduced herself and asked about the children, and they told her the story of their life with their abusive mother always punished them with her words, and often beat them as well, and starved them and locked them in the room when they were naughty. And then, in the distance, they could hear their mother calling them on the other side of the tunnel, out near the swimming pool. Where are you? Where are you brats? You little devils, you better get home this minute or you're going to be sorry. And she said many more mean things to them, threatening them, with severe punishment if they didn't obey her. And the old woman said to the children, you are welcome to stay here with me if you want for the rest of your life, and I will offer you full protection and care. So feeling really grateful to hear this woman say that, the children ignored their mother's words and decided to stay in this beautiful world forever, beyond the reach of their mean, abusive mother. So as we hear this story, we might be thinking, we wish it was so easy to simply escape when we experience ourselves suffering And we may uh, be thinking that this imaginary world is just like a fairy tale that people read about in children's books. Actually, there is a place, a plane of existence, a platform of consciousness, where we can enter in through the portal of the holy name and it's known as Vaikunta, the place free from anxiety. Prabhupada used to say that our Iskhan temples are Vaikunta because it is a place free from all worldly distractions and anxieties, because we find shelter here in the devotional service, service to the deity, all the other activities, but particularly the holy name. It's really the only escape route away from the mean old mother of material nature who's always punishing us with her 3 pronged durga trident known as the three modes of material nature. So when we hear this we might be thinking well I chanted once or twice the Hare Krishna mantra and I didn't experience the level of consciousness that you're describing here. But if we sincerely and consistently take shelter of the Lord's name we will be able to enter into this world of Vaikuntha free from anxiety as we feel ourselves protected and cared for by the Supreme Personality of Godhead who lives right inside our own hearts and the hearts of all living beings. Sometimes we think we are enjoying our life because we have a little wealth or maybe we have a high level of education or we have bodily beauty I'm very proud of myself because I'm thinking I earned all this myself, I worked hard, and I'm entitled to all that I have. But karma is so much more complex than what we think it is. It's so complex that it's not possible to figure out exactly the cause of our current happiness and distress. It's not so black and white as we might think it is. Oh, I'm suffering now because of this or that or that reason. So what Chitra Ketu was saying here is basically that all of our lives are a combination of a mixture of the consequences of our good and bad deeds since time immemorial, which are beyond our ability to remember. And when we find ourselves in an unhappy situation, there's no point getting busy blaming either the person who we feel harmed us or even blaming ourselves. Although on the Bhakti path, It's always a helpful attitude to take the humble position and remind ourselves that the first mistake we all made was to desire to leave the association of Krishna and enter into this material world in the first place. We made that first choice. To turn our backs on the source of our own lives, living in the core of our hearts and the hearts of all others. So. As long as we are under the influences of the modes of material nature, particularly passionate ignorance, we are puppets completely controlled by our attempts at becoming permanently happy in this temporary world. So Sridhar Prabhupada quotes in his purport to this verse, the conclusion of Bhagavad Gita as the only solution to material suffering. Just give up everything and surrender unto Me. Prabhupada also explains elsewhere that surrendering everything to Krishna, which includes one's mind, one's body, one's home, one's family, one's money, one's talents, is not such an easy thing. We should do it, but it's not so easy. In fact, it's so rare to meet a fully surrendered soul that Krishna says, out of many thousands of people, one may endeavor for perfection, and of those who have achieved perfection, hardly one knows me in truth." So keeping that in mind, how rare it is to be fully surrendered to Krishna, we need to acknowledge that we all have a long way to go before we consider ourselves a fully surrendered soul. That we're mixed devotees who have the desire to serve Krishna, and the desire to be the enjoyer and the controller of our lives. So there's this tension going on inside of us. And truth be told, Prabhupada said that all of us are, by nature, little controllers, which is natural. We all have to take responsibility for our lives in order to make progress in our spiritual lives. So we need to get our basic human needs met. Otherwise, we won't have the inspiration, nor will we have the energy in order to serve Krishna. So it's actually our responsibility, as long as we're in a body, to take care of our own needs and not expect other people to do that for us. This is the one instruction Lord Chaitanya gives. I think it was Sanatana Goswami saying, your body belongs to me, you need to take care of it. And this would include one one's mental body as well. So we have that duty, it's not a privilege, To take care of yourself it's actually your duty because your body your mind all of you doesn't belong to you so we need to be mindful that we are not the ultimate controller we're not the the, uh, ultimate enjoyer of our life and the lives of all living beings and that is universal reality which makes all living beings equal whether we're humans or animals on the spiritual Uh, level in the eyes of God, we're all the same. We're all as valuable. And so we can have compassion on ourselves with this awareness that we all have some strengths and gifts and we all have some weaknesses and limitations. So it's not surprising that sometimes we bump into each other as we try and navigate our way through this forest of illusion. It's very confusing and bewildering living in this material world. Most people are running around like chickens with their heads cut off, who rarely consider the consequences of their actions. So don't be surprised if you find yourself in some awkward situations in life. Don't be surprised if sometimes there are conflicts and misunderstandings in our relationships with each other. It is destined and predictable that there will be conflict, it's part of living in an embodied condition as spiritual beings. But we can't use this truth uh, as an excuse for hurting other people. Oh, that's just the way it is. That's just life. I'm not the controller, and I'm a victim of circumstances, so I don't have any responsibility in this situation. So that's sometimes we, we see that people use philosophy to justify maybe hurting other people or even abusing themselves. When when I was living in Schloss Rettershof in Germany, gosh, many years ago, maybe 40 years ago, maybe even 50, um, Prabhupada came to visit uh, us, and there were a million devotees from other countries who came to see him. So we had a lot of cooking to do. Just like here, you guys probably cooked 10 times more than we were cooking in uh, this castle. We thought that was a lot in those days, but uh, you all, I think, have us beat in Melbourne. I've never seen so many people cooking all the time. And um, anyway, there was this one girl who was outside the kitchen and she was trying to move an 80-gallon, you know, one of those milk cans uh, of, of milk, and she accidentally knocked the whole thing over, spilling all the 80 gallons of milk. And at that moment, Srila Prabhupada is walking down the steps, the kitchen was in the basement, and he was walking down the steps and he came, he stood He stood there in front of the girl and saw that she had milk up to her ankles. She was just like spracked up, up to here in milk. And so in her embarrassment, she shrugged her shoulders at Srila Prabhupada and said, Krishna's mercy! <laughs> And Prabhupada was disgusted. He said, Sri, he said, not Krishna's mercy, your stupidity. So we have, to, we have to also take responsibility for our actions and not simply blame it on the material nature. Even if this girl had a reason for perhaps making the milk can tip over, maybe she was dizzy, maybe suddenly she felt faint, or she tripped, or was sleepy, or whatever. The best thing is always to take responsibility that something that you did caused the current calamity. Rather than, you know, trying to make excuses or defending yourself, which is, by the way, one of the four animal propensities. Eating, sleeping, mating, and defending. And that's not just defending our bodies, but defending our egos. So whenever we start explaining something, rationalizing and justifying our actions, We're simply defending. And it's more skillful to simply accept, I'm an idiot and a fool, and apologize when we make a boo-boo, which is inevitable to happen. We're all just learning here. So when you're learning any skill, whether it's a piano or spiritual life, you're gonna make boo-boos, and you learn from those mistakes, you back up and you do something different. No shame in that. So devotee's always thinking, I'm a tiny little particle of dust and I, of course, I cannot understand things as they are with my limited brain, so let me simply take shelter of the Supreme Lord sitting in my own heart and pray for guidance in this awkward situation. Let me acknowledge my limitations as a human being and try to repair my relationships when it seems as though my behavior has harmed someone else. And in this way we will learn to have a humble heart, without which we cannot perceive the Lord who is living there, inside of us. One time at the end of Bhagavad Gita lecture, Sri Prabhupada was giving, a devotee asked him, what does it mean to surrender to Krishna? And Prabhupada said, surrender to Krishna means you have to accept things that are favorable for Krishna consciousness. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, what is Krishna consciousness? And Prabhupada defined Krishna Consciousness in several different ways. Sometimes he would define Krishna Consciousness as being God Conscious, as he did in a conversation with Satzaprut Maharaj, who asked him if Lord Jesus was in, in pure Krishna Consciousness. And Prabhupada said, yes, he also taught about God. Krishna Consciousness means God Consciousness. Jesus, or anyone who speaks about God, is in Krishna consciousness, but one must know the science, and within that science, there are degrees of knowledge. One person may know to one extent, another may know to a greater extent, and another may know to an even greater extent. There is a a room conversation I heard where uh, Srila Prabhupada was entertaining, or, or there were guests, there were two Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know if in Australia you have those. You have those? Lots of you have lots of those. Yeah, they come to the door. Yeah, uh, actually, I, when I was at my son's house, there was somebody at the door, and it was them, and they were, wanted to tell me about the good news. And I told them also about the good news. I said, "Yeah, I know about it. I know about that good news," and. <laughs> And, and so, anyway, they came to, to meet Srila Prabhupada. They were curious. I suspect they were going to try and give Prabhupada the good news, too. And they explained that they believed that the goal of life was to love and serve God. And Prabhupada said, oh, very nice. That's very nice. And then he asked them, um, so how do you serve God in your religion? And they answered that, well, we share the message of love of God and uh, by distributing books. And Prabhupada said, oh, that's very nice, too. We do that also. And um, then he asked about their life habits, like, do they drink or smoke, and they said, no, they didn't do that. So Prabhupada was pretty impressed by now, when you think of meeting some other religious practitioner that's actually practicing some uh, principles. And then he asked if their religion had any teaching about eating meat, and they said, no, they don't have any rules about eating animals. And after they left, Prabhupada has a conversation with uh, the devotees in the room, and and said a little little bit uh, disappointed there that they did not understand that loving God meant loving all living beings. So how can you eat them if you love animals? I mean, people have, it's really kind of nutty. You have your dog, your cat, you're petting them, and it's okay to eat cows, you know? You might as well eat your cat and dog. I mean, it's not rational uh, when you think in terms of the logic behind Western um, animal eaters. (laughs) It doesn't make sense. What I learned from this room conversation was that for Prabhupada the test of how much a person loves God is their refraining from activities that cause harm to themselves and others. For example, if a person truly loves God who lives in the heart of living beings, they will respect the right to live and they won't eat them, just like I said. A lover of God also will not engage in activities that are harmful to themselves and others like taking intoxicants. Uh, that harm their bodies and minds, and may lead them to harm others in an intoxicated state by driving and drinking or being intoxicated, maybe hitting someone with their car, or maybe being verbally abusive. Often people who are intoxicated, they act out, they say really mean things, and they do really hurtful things. A lover of God will not harm themselves also by exploiting another living being's body for their own sensual appetites. They have a respect, I'm here to serve, I'm not here to be a taker. A person who is mindful that everything belongs to Krishna will also use Lakshmi Devi in his service rather than taking financial risks through gambling. So Prabhupada also explained Krishna consciousness as having a complete understanding of Krishna. He explains, if a group of people is taking the stairs to reach the 104th floor of a skyscraper, there are so many steps they must take. And comparatively, one person may have covered 10 steps Another may have covered twenty, while another will have taken a hundred steps. Their aim is the same, but you can't say that whoever has covered one hundred steps has progressed as far as one who has covered two steps. So there might be different religions, but people have different degrees of their realization in all religions. You know, you have, uh, for example, Vaishnavas, and you have mystic Christians, and Sufis, and, and Hasidic Jews, they all practice our principles. They all would, it's the mystic traditions all have, they're vegetarian and they get up early and they are entering into a relationship with God as a person. So their their degrees of progress are different proportionately, but the steps are already there for anyone to take. So in any religious system, regardless of Hindu, Christian, or Mohammedan, I'm quoting here Srila Prabhupada, the question is how its followers are climbing those steps They're going up the same staircase, but the question is, how much progress have they made? So these Jehovah's Witnesses, they seemed like they really had a lot more awareness than other religions, but they kind of got stuck on this food thing. And there was a moment where Prabhupada said, you know, I would work with the Pope if they had better eating habits, because their mission also in the Catholic Church is to spread love of God. But he said, he said, they need to change their eating habits for us to really collaborate, because we can't agree, we're not going to agree on that one. So Prabhupada was so liberal like that, his criteria for Krishna consciousness was not defined by a religious doctrine or dogma. It was very simple, that in this age of Kali, we just have to always remember Krishna, and never forget Krishna by always chanting his holy name. It is actually the same message that Jesus was teaching, to pray without ceasing, In the Bible it says, from the rising to the setting of the sun, let the name of the Lord be praised. So our goal as aspiring devotees is to always remember and never forget Krishna, and sometimes it can be really a struggle, as we are all mixed devotees. Sometimes we have a taste for chanting, and sometimes we don't. But we should chant anyway, or at least be in the presence of others who are chanting when we have no taste for chanting. And Prabhupada used to tell a joke about a wife who, had her, who told her husband to chant, chant, chant. And her husband would say, can't, can't, can't. And he would say, well, in the same time it took the man to say it, I can't chant, he could have chanted a whole Hare Krishna mantra. It was, it was just completely illogical. So I'm going to end this talk by reading a poem by Bhaktivinoda Thakur from his Saranagati called, Chant Anyway. Your mind is wandering all over the universe when you chant. Chant anyway. Your mind is wandering to the past and future when you chant. Well, chant anyway. You are not able to concentrate on Krishna's names while you chant. Chant anyway. You have no taste for chanting. Chant anyway. You have lusty desires. Chant anyway. You're making offenses in chanting. Chant anyway. You are not praying to Krishna to help you chant better. Chant anyway. You often chant late at night. Chant anyway. So why? And this is Bhakti Notakar speaking, not me. Why, why should you chant despite all the obstacles? This is why, he says, there is no vow like chanting the holy name, no knowledge superior to it, no meditation which comes anywhere near it, and it gives the highest result. No penance is equal to it, and nothing is as potent or powerful as the holy name chanting is the greatest act of piety and the supreme refuge. Even the words of the Vedas do not possess sufficient power to to describe its magnitude. Chanting is the highest path to liberation, peace, and eternal life. It's the pinnacle of devotion, the heart's joyous proclivity and attraction, and the best form of remembrance of the Supreme Lord. The holy name has appeared solely for the benefit of the living entities as their lord and master, their supreme worshipful object, and their spiritual guide and mentor. Whoever continuously chants Lord Krishna's holy name, even in his sleep, can easily realize that the name is a direct manifestation of Krishna himself in spite of the influences of Kali Yuga. So I'm going to stop here. Thank you very much. Any reflections you want to share, or something came up as you were listening? Something? You have a question? Comment? Yeah. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. I was just wondering um, uh, the concept everything we experience is a reaction of our past deeds. I was just wondering how we distinguish what's a reaction of our past deeds and what occurs due to the Lord's causal spell. Ah, it's a switch of our consciousness. You know, when we even, even sometimes in the old days when we, we heard these verses, give up everything and surrender unto me, we would, you know, leave our homes and our wives and our jobs and everything and jump in. And then we realized, oh my God, I gave up too much. Because we thought surrender had to do with externals. And it can evol- evolve into that, but it's really a shift of consciousness. So when we take shelter of the Supreme Lord, then we're taking shelter of Yoga Maya. And that everything, Krishna tailor-makes everything that's happening to you in such a way that will help you learn and grow and take more shelter of the Lord so that you can attain realization. If you're ignorant and you're under the influence of ignorant in passion, then everything that happens to you is just you getting whipped by, by yoga, uh, Mahamaya, Durga. Yeah. It's just a shift of awareness. Yeah. Did you have a comment? You were just scratching your head? Massaging your head. Hi hey, Krishnaraji. Um you mentioned about the story of Prabhupada where uh Rajishi she tipped over Mm-hmm. So, where do you draw that line, do you mind that writing on this prayer? is it okay to have that kind of consciousness? And that it is my fault at the end of the day, or is it Christian mercy to some extent? Well, whatever the reason, whether you're celebrating or you're suffering, is always a good reason to chant. <laughs> I, I came to that conclusion, you know, as they're fiddling around trying to figure out what a strategy is. The only strategy is, is to pray for guidance, to chant, and wait for God to reveal, because this is a descending process. It's not a, I'm going to figure it out with my mundane brain. It's too, the puzzle of life is just too complex. So the, the, the Bhakta puts themselves in the hands, or the, like a baby mouse, a mouse in the mouth of a, a cat, is that I don't know what's really going on here. Um, somehow, maybe I've gotten a smack by the material energy or whatever, not a blade of grass moves without Krishna's sanction. My back's a pin to the wall, so before I start impulsively doing and saying things, I'm going to seek guidance from the Lord in my heart. And I may I may do that by also reaching out to people I trust and consult with them, and you know talk about it with somebody and, and reveal our mind and heart. But uh, at the end of the day, it's all Krishna, you know. Either Krishna's inferior energy, like even if you're in. Illusion, and you're getting kicked, but also if you have some intelligence to learn from it, then it leads to spiritual growth. But the sad reality, if we're in ignorance, we keep doing what we're doing, and we keep getting what we're getting. So then it tells you, you're not learning much, because learning means you change your behavior. Does that makes sense? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, so you said that we should go on the other side of um, the have happiness stay Krishna Krishna the whole day Yeah, well, the, the Hare Krishna mantra is the tool. Now you may be sitting in your classroom at school, and they'll think you're crazy if you now start chanting and the teacher's doing math class or something, right? So, but you may have internal chanting, you know. Um, You may have a picture of Krishna in your pocket. You may have a little, some people have these little uh, stones they have in their pocket to remember something. But you have to figure out some way how I can remember. Krishna's everywhere, so he's in your classroom. You know, he's in the heart of your teacher and your friends. And you can look. Look and see how Krishna's speaking through your friends, even if they're not devotees. Often Krishna gives you great messages through everything. But it's a question of fixing the heart and mind early in the day so that you're likely to remember. That's why we get up so early and we, before the sun rises we try to get our head in gear so we can wake up and remember who we are as servants and, and parts of Krishna but that's your, that's your job to figure out, how am I going to remember Krishna somehow? Yeah, Aniruddha. I'm not sure it's working. Yeah, yeah it's a dead, dead mic. <laughs> Krishna is but also just Exactly. It is. Thank you for that, so that's a, good, that's a good instruction, just praying internally. I think practical, yeah, we can close our eyes and, you know, Krishna save me, help me, you know. Yeah, it's a, heart, it's a heart thing, you know, crying out in our heart, so it may not be verbal always. Any other thoughts or, yes? How do we to that don't Right. Well, happiness and distress is coming and going like summer and winter seasons. One must learn to tolerate them without being disturbed. So that's happening, because this is an ocean. Like M. Prabhupada said, sometimes I'm swimming, sometimes I'm drowning, sometimes I'm floating in the ocean of my. So that's just part of being in the material world, no matter what your karma is. Everybody's Adi adidevic, you know, sufferings of the mind and the natural disasters, all that's happening, you know. But we also have a unique situation in the material world that brings us to a particular context. And you also have different stages of life. So naturally, it's just completely natural, you're riding on this vehicle, young people, but particularly their their 20s, they're looking for their mission, they're trying to get successful, they get married, they're trying to build a family and all that. It's completely normal and natural. You know, it can be very frustrating if you're not doing all this, because the rest of the world is putting pressure on you better do it, particularly your mother is going to be telling you, now you better get all secure in the material world. And so, uh, that's okay, but. Side by side, we need to just be aware of what's going on. It's just awareness. It's not that you don't you you have to fight with your material nature. Uh, I think young people they need to figure out what they're going to spend their life doing if they live long enough. The illusion is that we are going to live. We make all these plans, thinking that we have a whole life ahead of us. And as we know, the whole Bhagavatam was written for a man who was about to die in seven days. And um, I'm in the health care business and so I know that if a person stops eating and drinking in seven days they're dead. I've watched it happen. It's, you could, it's the only only a bona fide way to leave your body if you want to make that choice. But the reality is you can make all kinds of plans, but there's no guarantee that you will be here tomorrow. So Srila Prabhupada advises that um, we should live our life as if, if this were our last day, and make plans as if we're going to live forever. So you have to ride these two things, because you have one foot in the spiritual world as a satchitananda part and parcel of the Lord, who you are, your spiritual nature, and you're also in this material world, so you've got, to, you've got to situate yourself properly in the material world so you're peaceful enough to do that other work. And so that's different for each of us, you know, someone choose a grihasta path, some might be more uh, peaceful in, in, a, in a brahmachari ashram, you know, you have to figure that out. Where you can be peaceful and not agitated, so you can do this work of hearing and chanting, and it might mean you need financial security, you know? If you feel that you're too anxious about that, well then get a job and get yourself situated. But the real thing that we, we all need to do is to to save time for nurturing our spirit, because today could be our last day, and if we're, we've are we done that, or worked on ourselves that way, we're ready. I remember when I was a young mother and I had babies, you know, I'm living in the temple. I've lived in the temple my whole life. I've never had a home, ever. My husband and I never even had a house, ever, so if you can imagine, <laughs> he lived in his office and I lived in a room next to the Brahmacharini ashram. So, um, but, you know, I used to get up at sometimes 1 or 2 o'clock and chant my rounds and read an hour, and then I'd do all my laundry, and then I'd think by six o'clock, okay, if I died today, I had it all done. I've got my laundry done, I've got my rounds done, I'm all set. You know, so that I'm thinking, oh God, I didn't do my rounds yet. So, you have to, you have to craft your life in such a way to make the priority your spiritual life, and then everything will reveal itself and come together around that in a, in a natural and helpful way. You'll be guided to make the right choices, so you're not just overwhelmed by all the material stuff that you've got to do, you have yoga. In fact, um, Krishna says to Arjuna, armed with yoga, stand and fight. He doesn't say just get up and stand and fight. You've got to, first of all, get armed with yoga, connected to yourself, the Lord in yourself, the Lord in in all living beings, and then you're ready to go out there and face that battle, whatever your battle is. Yeah, Uh, Aniruddha. If we accept that all of the reactions that we experience are as a result, Yeah, right. No, no, I have two. Yeah, misuse of. Yeah. Right. Well, it also has a lot to do with your role, and your goals, and the context. So if you're in a position where your duty is to protect the citizens, like a king or a manager, then it is your role to make sure that everybody feels safe and, and protected. And, um, and so, I think it, it has a lot to do with how we do things. You know, when you think in terms of even Krishna's father chastising him, Nanda Maharaj would come to him, he wasn't beating him up, you know, he wasn't abusing him. He came and humbly said, look, I'm your father. It's my duty to chastise you now. You're really naughty, so I'm going to do this thing. I'm really sorry about it, but that's my duty. So I think it has a lot to do with how we lean in. And also, if we are feeling ourselves abused or there's no justice, I think our duty is also to voice it and to approach whoever it is that we feel that is is not giving us justice with the view of achieving greater understanding there may be some missing piece that you don't know about that person's story that would really help and maybe there's something practical that the two of you can negotiate in order to uh, make both of you all or all of everybody satisfied. So, if I were representing Krishna in the sense that I'm in responsible for the whole universe, I'd be trying to think, how do I uh, respond to everybody simultaneously, which is a big job, But that's kind of our role, the more responsibility we have as representative of Krishna. how can we how can we somehow um, help everybody get what they need? and help them continue pursuing spiritual life, whatever that means. But I do think having a conversation is appropriate, and I think that when, when there's a difference between being um, humiliated and being shamed. And I think that as people, sometimes we use words and behavior to unnecessarily punish and shame people, and sometimes we might feel punished and shamed by other people, the way they say, maybe they say things to us or they neglect us and stuff. Um, and, you know, the, the question is, am I guilty? Did I do anything? Or am I just feeling humiliated because I haven't been understood? And I think that for us, to, if, if we feel like, I, I cannot see reasonably that I've done anything in the immediate circumstance that's really unjust or wrong, then it might be a question to ask the person who has ignorantly um, maybe defamed, abused, misused their power to ask a question or be able to advocate for oneself, so that you're not just just, uh, enabling an abuser to continue abusing. I think this is the reason why we need to speak up when we see abuse of power is that if you don't, then that person will be given a license to keep hurting other people. So in terms of uh, taking care of Krishna's world, we have, we have a duty to struggle to survive and, and um, enable other people to survive too. That's probably a very complicated answer. It needs a context. I think we're over time. Are you all hungry? <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Sr. Prabhupada Gijai.